when it comes to your finances, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, and you've invested all that you can. Now it's time to take those investments to the next level by using the brand behind every great investor, Yahoo Finance. As America's number one finance destination, Yahoo Finance has everything you need, whether you're a seasoned trader or just dipping your toes into the market. Join the millions of investors who trust Yahoo Finance to guide them on their financial journey. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com. This podcast contains explicit language. Welcome to So That Happened, the HuffPost Politics podcast about things that happened. I'm your host, Arthur Delaney. I'm joined in studio by Ryan Grimm, the bureau chief of The Intercept. And I'm also joined, though he's not in the studio, I won't tell you where he is, by Jeff Young, uh, one of the HuffPost's premier healthcare reporters. Hello, Jeff, are you there? Yes, yes. I, I didn't know if you guys were going to continue the introduction for another couple of minutes. So, you know, we don't know where you are, but anyway, thank well, that, you so that, much that for, much for uh, lending your disembodied voice to this conversation about health care. It came back in such a big way as a topic this week. Uh, I got a little crap on Twitter after last week's show because we headlined our podcast episode Single payer is alive and Obamacare repeal is dead. And a lot of people thought that was incorrect because Obamacare repeal appears to be alive and kicking. Well, I'm here to say, actually, we were right in the first place. It's been dead this whole time. And it's like we're at a wake where we're standing around an open casket and some people are pointing at the dead body and saying, look, he's alive. He's dead. That's what I maintain. But... Well, let's get let's get right into it. Why are people saying it's live? Because Republicans appear. Well, there's you know, they a lot of talk about doing stuff. Yeah, there's a lot of talk about, and it, it revolves around the meaning of different words. Uh, so, is there a live fight right now? Yes, yes, there is a there is a live fight right now. People are lit up on on Twitter and on the emails, and they're and they're calling their members of uh, Congress, both the House and the Senate, telling them not to vote for Graham Cassidy. You have. Graham and Cassidy very much uh, acting as if the bill is alive, even in private, apparently. Lindsey Graham was overheard at National Airport uh, trying to talk his good friend, it sounded like John McCain, into voting for the bill. Did you see this story? In it the turned AP? out it was Sean Hannity. I, yeah, he was on the phone with Sean Hannity. Oh, he was on the phone on, with on Sean Hannity? Yeah. Yeah, he was doing a radio hit. Well, anyway, pe- people are looking for signs everywhere, <laughs> so, <laughs> signs of life. It's like on oh, Mars, like we may have a microorganism. Well, anyway, so you, ha- so you have people who are treating this as if it is very much alive, and you don't have three people, which is the number of Republicans you would need, publicly affirming a 100% no vote. You have Rand Paul saying he's against it. You have Susan Collins basically saying she's against it, and nobody on any side expecting her to vote for it. And then you have uh, Lisa Murkowski and John McCain as the other holdouts. You don't have uh, any evidence that either of those are going to vote for him. But you don't. But you. But in the in defense of the the people panicking, they they are not on the record yet as firm knows. Why are yeah, I want to Arthur? I want to I want to jump in on, on on this too. And and everything Ryan said is is correct except that thing about 
Sean Hannity. Right. Um, <laughs> but, you know, I mean, it, w- you mentioned uh, the, the last edition of the podcast, and, you know, I was on there with you guys, and what I said is that, you know, this Graham Cassidy, Cassidy Graham thing is the, I think I called it the death rattle of Obamacare. Death right? rattle, that's right. Um, I I am not backing down from that for the reasons Ryan just stated, um, but, you know, I also... Obviously, this is real because it's happening, right? I, I personally have a theory I will never be able to prove that this is happening because people said it was happening and now it's actually happening. I agree with um, that. Right? But, uh, you know, I mean, Mitch McConnell says he's going to bring a bill to the floor next week. He, you know, that makes, he said he that makes this says real, he might. Right? He says that's his intention. That's right. That's right. So, so, you know, I mean, it's one thing to accurately point out, and I really can't say this often enough, and this is similar to a point that Ryan just made, but like three Republicans voted against this thing last time. None of them have said they're going to vote for it this time, and a fourth one has said he's going to vote against it. So, you know, all this talk from Cassidy and Graham and their allies about momentum, we're making progress, we're really close, and the White House is getting involved, and Mitch McConnell and Paul Ryan are encouraging him to, nothing has actually changed from when this thing went down in July. Um, but again, it might, because if there is a bill on the floor and John McCain and Lisa Murkowski have to make a choice, they could choose to vote yes. So, you know, in that sense, it's real and it's more of a threat than it was when we talked about this on Friday, or uh, sorry, not on Friday, but whenever we recorded last week. Let, let, let me share my theory. Uh, and first of all, I'll, I'll preface it by saying that I am prepared to eat the the full twelve inch shit sandwich if I'm wrong, and they do get this through the Senate. Uh, my theory is that there is a mutually reinforcing desire to look busy among senators right now. Uh, Republicans have been uh, talking up re- re- Obamacare repeal for a good eight years, and it looks ridiculous that they have so little to show for it as they control uh, the Congress and the White House. So, th- so they want to look busy. Democrats. Uh, and this is corny. I hate saying it, but they they like to energize their base. Mm-hmm. When you saw Chuck Schumer's red alert tweet, for instance, last week, I thought that really kicked off a lot of the concern among people outside of Congress that this is a real effort. But it also struck me as a, a sort of uh, uh, fundraising effort, uh, something that galvanizes support for Democrats at a time when they were in the in the midst of negotiating with the the awful President Trump. On DACA. Right. I mean, it does come at a time where people in base were getting a little restive about what Democrats were doing cozying up to Trump, even even though they were getting the better of him in every argument. They're, they're saying, well, you're still talking to Donald Trump. And so this, uh, you know, gives them a, a unified enemy to, 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 go, up, to go up against. Uh, but to put an even finer point on it, I think it's 100 percent accurate to say last week that Graham Cassidy is dead and doesn't have the votes. And it, I think it is 100 percent accurate to say today Graham Cassidy is dead and doesn't have the votes, they would have to radically change Graham Cassidy in order to get the votes of people like uh, Lisa Murkowski. And so is it still Graham Cassidy? Now we're back to the meaning of words here. The bill that, it, the bill that is on the table is dead. Lisa Murkowski is not voting for a bill that, that, that cuts funding for Alaska. You know, she has said that she's doing everything for Alaska. Now, Lindsey Graham has said, look, Alaska's a complicated case. It's got very few people and a giant landmass, and, and Obamacare is a legitimate disaster in 
uh, for premiums in, in Alaska. And Jeff can, I'm sure. Well, say, I, I, if I, if I can interject yeah. there, the governor of Alaska announced yesterday that the biggest insurance provider on the exchanges is reducing its premiums by 25 percent for next year. So. Hey. hey. Uh, I have, less of a disa- so, less of a disaster than it was on Monday, and so my point is though only that there everybody has a price, and if theoretically everybody has a price, and if Lindsey Graham could find that price and cover everybody's health care in Alaska for the next ten years for free, you know maybe then that gets Lisa Murkowski to a place where she votes yes, but that is a different bill than the one we're talking about. I think Murkowski has been pretty clear in her previous comments that about all these various repeal bills, that that's not the only thing she cares about, right? Yeah. That like the larger issues are troublesome to her, you know, a bunch of people getting kicked off their insurance, etc. Also, Lisa Murkowski and Susan Collins have both said a million times they won't vote for things that defund the Planned Parenthood, right. and this bill does that. So right, and and they can't take that out. Right, of the she'd have to go like, right in order in order to vote for this. She'd have to go against everything she has said about wanting an open committee process, a, a transparent and bipartisan bill that t- that takes time and that buys consensus and that does not de- defund Planned Parenthood. She'll, she'd have to undermine all of that, even with what I'm talking about the billions for Alaska. You cover the Senate. And I would argue I would argue that that's true about McCain and Collins as well as I did mm-hmm. in a piece that I that I published with Igor uh, Babich on uh, Thursday night that I would refer people to. I compiled uh, we compiled a, a whole bunch of stuff that those three senators said about why they voted no last time and what their problems are with the current package and I don't see how any of them could vote yes without turning themselves into huge liars. Well they they, they can do that. That's a possibility that we should not. Right, they would, just, they would just turn themselves yeah, into question. liars. But why, it would make them huge liars. Why, if they are uh, opposed, why are people like John McCain, Lisa Murkowski, Susan Collins, uh, so coy about their position? So, for, for somebody like Lisa Murkowski, uh, that's well, a that's how senators always do it for the most part. Uh, yeah. Right? Why? Just be, please, so that people explain. talk. So that people talk to them. You know, pe- people get into <laughs> politics because they want people to pay attention to them. Like, yeah. think about everybody you know who's ever run for anything. You know, that's that's what they want. The second that Lisa Murkowski says, "Yeah, I'm no on this," then people stop talking to her. Rand Paul kind of breezes through the hallways nowadays. You still against this, Senator? Yeah, still against it. Like that. That's and that's not exactly what senators want. Senators want to stand there. And have twenty five reporters around them with recorders asking them their their thoughts on policy separately. If if Murkowski comes out and says ahead of time that she's a no, then it goes from a lobbying campaign uh, where you're trying to woo Murkowski to a vitriol campaign ah. where the entire uh, right wing of the country is call is doing all sorts of mean things to her on online and what does she need that for when she when she could have when she could just avoid it by doing what she did last time uh which was not tell anybody how they were going to vote but let everybody assume that it was going to be no and then when she gets on the floor to vote no jeffrey young you're a health policy expert how has the uh, substantive part of the debate been playing out in your view we've had this incredible tiff between uh, the late night host Jimmy Kimmel and uh, uh, Bill Cassidy, I, I I just think I want to dwell on that sentence for just a moment. It's fucking ridiculous, but okay, fine. Yes, right. So the problem here, 
well, among the various problems, is that Bill Cassidy, Lindsey Graham, Donald Trump, all these people are saying, uh, our bill is great for people with pre-existing conditions. It doesn't change anything, which is – I'm just going to be very clear about this – a lie. Like it's <laughs> there's no ambiguity here, right? There is a phrase in said. the bill that specifically says states can waive – these various rules, right? Now, but doesn't it, it also say so, like states have to be, you know, granted that they say they'll be nice, they can waive. Isn't that isn't that where yeah, the well, lie rests? Yeah, so it basically says if a state tells us everybody will be okay, they're automatically approved. They don't have to prove it, demonstrate it. There's no enforcement of it. And, you know, to be clear about what the policy is, right? It's not as simple as saying in the bill, uh, people with pre-existing conditions can get screwed from now on again. You know, what it says is if states want to, they can let insurance companies charge you more based on your health status or your medical history and let insurance companies kind of just make up whatever benefit packages they want. Now, it may sound boring, but what that means is in states that do that, and a lot of them probably would because it makes insurance cheaper for some people and then just screws the sick and the poor, which, you know, like all these other repeal bills are designed to do. Um, so, you know, so the. So your situation where an insurance company maybe under the law can't tell you, I'm sorry, you've had cancer before. I won't sell you insurance. But what they can say is, oh, I see you've had cancer. Your insurance costs $20,000 a month and doesn't cover chemo. Would you like to buy it? Oh, well, you've chosen to not buy it then. We haven't told you you can't have it. We've just, you know. So, right. You can have you know, a Corvette. I, yeah. And I honestly – this is going to sound maybe ridiculous, but like – after all this crap over the last, you know, seven, eight years or whatever with Obamacare repeal and especially over the course of this year in the House and the Senate, I genuinely don't know whether Bill Cassidy is lying or doesn't understand his own bill. I really don't. And Donald Trump certainly doesn't understand any of it. I mean right, – Trump's he, not lying. You know, <laughs> <laughs> well, now right. this is the way people have made excuses right. for Trump's lies the whole time. Well, we can't say he's lying. No, no you, have to, you have to assume he knows something. No, you, uh, I think you can call it a lie when a person ought to know at this point after so many months. I mean he watches Kimmel. So, so he what, knows. So, so, why, so Jimmy Kimmel is going to be like the lasting thing from this debate that we've had this summer. It's going to be Jimmy Kimmel. Is, is Jimmy, Jimmy Kimmel, Kimmel doing a good job or does he fail the Jeffrey Young test? I, I don't know. I, you know, he seems to know basically what he's talking about, I guess. And But I mean, it's also for him, it's, it's personal. So it's a little hard to – like nitpick exactly what he happens to say because he's, you know, dealing with a thing in his own life that has sort of awakened him to, hey, other people have this problem too. Maybe I should talk about it. You know, it seems like he's um, doing accurately representing portions of the bill and, uh, you know, showing uh, them to his audience on the screen. Yeah. Uh, yes. But 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 the, but the, I think more important is that the main point here, the sort of <laughs> the area of dispute between TV funny man. And senator is what does this bill make things worse for people who have pre-existing conditions the answer is yes so jimmy kimmel is right on that point i honestly can't believe i'm talking about jimmy kimmel <laughs> uh jeffrey young thank you so much for for coming and talking about this ryan grimm thanks for coming into the studio uh we will try not to be smug we'll be vigilant uh but the the bill is probably dead even though Mitch McConnell has said he intends, it is his intention, to hold a, a vote next week. When it comes to your finances, you think you've done it all. 
You've saved, you've researched, and you've invested all that you can. Now it's time to take those investments to the next level by using the brand behind every great investor, Yahoo Finance. As America's number one finance destination, Yahoo Finance has everything you need, whether you're a seasoned trader or just dipping your toes into the market. Join the millions of investors who trust Yahoo Finance to guide them on their financial journey. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince, they exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. We'll be right back. We're back. This is Arthur Delaney. I'm joined in studio by my colleague, Marina Fang. Hello. And my other colleague, Jessica Schulberg. Hi. Now, Donald Trump is talking nuclear war this week. He gave a speech at the United Nations in New York, and he literally said, you know, I I might have to totally annihilate a country. Marina Fang, you covered this speech for us this week. What was going on? Yeah, so he said basically that he or the U.S. will, quote, have no choice but to totally destroy North Korea. Um, obviously, there's been a lot going on there with its burgeoning nuclear program over the last few weeks. And it's basically just this been this kind of trading off of fiery rhetoric between Trump and the North Korean regime. So, yeah, this speech was... By all accounts, kind of crazy. So he well, so he <laughs> said we may have to totally destroy North Korea, yeah. and he also had a choice insult for the leader of that country, Kim Jong Un. Yes, he called him Rocket Man <laughs> again. <laughs> I yes, he also tweeted that over the weekend. Um, so he's famous for yeah. nicknames. Now yes. he did nicknames for his opponents in politics: Lion Ted. Crooked low, Hillary. Low energy, Jeb. Um, <laughs> little Marco. But yep. what other world leaders have nicknames at this point besides uh, Kim Jong-un? That's mm-hmm. This is it, right? He's, yeah, not that I can what think What an of. honor. Yeah. <laughs> Interesting. Death and destruction. Yeah. So two sides uh, in the standoff with North Korea are being increasingly provocative. Uh, North Korea under its current leader – who's been in power for a few years, has yeah, been... seven, sh- I think, or six. They've been launching more and better missiles and detonating uh, bigger nuclear bombs in, like, the last few weeks. Right. And Trump has been saying meaner things. Like, he's he, a few weeks ago, said unimaginable fire and fury. Right. Uh, this is an escalation by both sides. And it's contrary to the strategy that the United States has pursued in the past, as I've understood it, Jessica. Yeah, so during the Obama administration, they pursued a policy that they called strategic patience, um, which was sort of the idea that we're not going to try to escalate things, but we're also not going to enter negotiations just for the sake of negotiations. Um, It was sort of seen as like maybe waiting out the regime to see if uh, something more amenable to our terms would come about, or at least wait until the kind of political environment was better for negotiations. 
negotiating. Um, that got a lot of criticism since obviously, you know, what Kim Jong-un has been doing over the past few months wasn't like a direct reaction to Trump. You know, this has been in the making for a while. The, the program's been getting more technically um, competent. And a lot of that happened during the Obama administration. Um, I, I think the big danger with the Trump administration is you, you do see people like Tillerson and Mattis giving some statements that indicate that they would like to have some type of negotiated agreement, which is really the only way that this doesn't end in war. Um, and it doesn't help when you have Trump coming out threatening to just completely annihilate the country. I mean, it, it really, really uh, cuts off even like the remote chance that we could have some type of deal with this country. Yeah, there is a clear pattern where other world leaders are learning to recognize that Trump will say totally different things from the rest of the United States government. Uh, now, Obama knew he was bequeathing a crisis with North Korea mm-hmm. to Trump and told him as much in his letter, uh, which is a tradition of transition. Mm-hmm. Uh, there used to be back channels of communication between these two countries through an office in New York, but under Obama, that relationship sort of fell apart. And it's like our relationship with North Korea actually is what Kim Jong-un and Donald Trump are saying. <laughs> I mean, there still is back-channel communication, like how active the New York channel is, kind of is up and down. And um, there's also what they call track two diplomacy, where non-government officials, at least in the U.S., uh, go to North Korea. These are like think tank people. And Dennis Rodman. And Dennis Rodman <laughs> yeah. uh, go to North Korea and do speak with government officials. And these track two people do say that there is an openness and a willingness to enter some type of negotiation. I think um, the problem is under what terms? I think... It's really hard for the American foreign policy establishment to drop the idea that we can somehow get North Korea to denuclearize. Um, And so setting up some type of precondition like that is pretty much a non-starter for the North Koreans. And I mean, uh, you know, logically, like, why why wouldn't it be? They they already have the weapons. This isn't like when we were negotiating with the Iranians where they hadn't quite reached this capability and we were able to sort of nip it before it got to that point. Like, why would you – give up uh, a capability that you've already developed. It seems clear that there's no decisive military action we could even take like that. No matter what, if one side attacks, there will be a massive retaliation and a lot of people will definitely die. Right. Mattis recently said that there is a military option that doesn't threaten Seoul in South Korea, which just seems like completely implausible. And it it made a lot of people wonder, like, what what are you talking about? Like, Like, it's sort of like understating the the risk of any military action. Like, that is the risk of military action. Right. But then we've also kind of exhausted a lot of these diplomatic options, as Jess said. And also, the UN keeps passing these rounds of sanctions. And it's just sort of this endless cycle of North Korea does a test, and then the UN votes on more sanctions, mm-hmm. rinse and repeat without really any sort of progress. I mean, Marina, that, that's a good point, though. It's it's not that Trump is totally cowboy right, right. now. This is the global community. Uh, Trump is totally cowboy in his rhetoric. And I actually don't think we have exhausted diplomatic efforts. I don't think there's been like a real sincere push for negotiations. And I think this current posture kind of puts us even further away from that. And even on sanctions, I mean, there are a lot if we do choose to go down that path, and it's debatable whether or not it would work, there's a lot more that we could do to sanction the North Koreans and secondary sanctions through China for trading with but North Korea. But this is action we take with the United Nations is what I mean. That oh, it's, right. it's not as though Trump is totally yeah. freelancing, uh, going against his generals and the rest of the world. Like mm-hmm. For the most part, the UN uh, members are on the same page. 
with regard to increasing sanctions. Sure. Yeah. But not with threatening destruction. <laughs> right. So I, I think uh, and hopefully North Korean leaders understand this, that what Trump says isn't the thing to focus on in terms of what our policy is. But there's like a, a serious question whether there's enough communication for them to actually understand that. Communication and also just like trust between the U.S. and North Korea is, I mean, I can't even state how non-existent it is. I mean, the, the, the history here does not inspire a lot of trust. We, we carpet bombs the upper half of Korea. We military occupied the lower half. I mean, like there, there, there isn't really a lot of reason for the North Koreans to think that we're coming at this in earnest. And then in more recent history, if you, you look around from from – the North Koreans' perspective, uh, we get Gaddafi to give up his nuclear weapons in Libya, and then we help overthrow him. We we ousted Saddam for not even having nuclear weapons. You know, in retrospect, if you're if you're in Saddam's camp, you might be saying like, "Gosh, maybe he should have maybe should have gotten them." Like this is this is sort of the Kim Jong Un's insurance policy on staying in power. The Korean War did not even really end right. in the sense that there was no treaty. They just stopped fighting. Like, they just okay, we're going to take a break. Drew a line between. <laughs> now, uh, I'm glad you mentioned other countries because we have another nuclear situation with Iran and Trump addressed that marina in his speech at the United Nations. Right. He So he hasn't officially announced this yet, but he gave a very strong indication that the U.S. would not renew the Iranian nuclear deal from 2015. He called it, quote, an embarrassment and one of the worst deals we've ever been involved in. You know, very typical language, clearly like playing to his base. um, You know, he's always talking about how the U.S. has been in these horrible deals and has been taken advantage of. Um, So, yeah, he made it pretty clear that he's not going to renew the deal. I wondered about that playing to his base. Like he he talked about it in a pretty casual language. Yeah. Mm -hmm. He's like, you know, you haven't heard the last of that. Yeah. Well, okay. It's like a reality not, show. Right? Exactly. Yeah. For the big reveal. It's a deal that requires the United States uh, uh, that the parties to the deal to continuously certify that well, the so, deal is still on. What is so the, the situation? The deadline that's coming up is actually a little bit different. He recently, Trump, um, did re authorized sanctions waivers, which is what the U.S. and other countries need to do to be compliant with the deal. Which is basically money for right, Iran. Right. Iran downsizes its nuclear program. In return, we continuously waive sanctions against them, which allows not us still, but other countries to trade and do business with Iran. Um, so that happened. That that wasn't really... That was sort of like a, a holding page. What The deadline we're looking forward to now is on October 15th. Trump has to tell Congress whether or not Iran is complying with the deal. Um, that's unrelated to the Iran deal itself. That's based out of legislation that Congress passed back in 2015 because they wanted to tell Obama that like they get to have a role in this too. Um, and so now the Trump administration is in this really weird place where you have like Generals, you have the IEA, which is the international body that kind of regulates nuclear proliferation, saying that Iran is compliant with this deal. And at the same time, Trump is just desperately looking for any way to say that they're not compliant so that he can tell Congress, you know, Iran is not being compliant. And then it sort of goes to Congress to decide whether or not to reimpose sanctions, which, you know, oh, really? politically is kind of Trump's favorite thing to do. He's done this on DACA. He did this on, yeah. What else did he do this on? Healthcare, sort of. Right. I mean, he hasn't really he, like blows been... shit up and then makes Congress take yeah, care of it. He hasn't really been pushing the healthcare bill like actively, mm-hmm. other than tweeting about it. And so, so this sets up a, a weird situation where, I mean, if you recall, all of the Republicans voted 
uh, not to enter the Iran deal in September 2015. And a handful of Democrats, I mean, it was definitely more than a majority of Congress said, we don't want to be in this deal. Um, but because of complicated parliamentary rules, you actually needed a, a, a two-thirds. It wasn't even parliamentary rules. It's the way the deal was up. You needed, you needed more than a majority, and they didn't get it. So Obama was able to go through with the deal. But in this case, that if the same if the vote fell down the same way, you, you could see the U.S. exiting the deal, which puts members of Congress in this really awkward situation where they're going to have to either blow up this thing that they all say we should probably just stay in, uh, two years after saying, this is the worst thing ever. We definitely can't do well, it. That, that will be a big problem because we have a president who punts to Congress. Historically, Congress has punted to the executive right, on all matters right. of, of global. And it was pretty clear in 2015 that a lot of these people were voting against the deal because they, they knew they could. Like they knew the vote count. They knew enough other people would vote the other way. And they knew the Obama administration was going to go through with it. So they got to say, like, I'm tough on Iran. But like – you know, let's actually not go to war. This is a campaign promise for Trump, though, and we've seen that he didn't. He literally doesn't mean any of his campaign promises. There's no wall. There's no health care. Uh, there's no infrastructure. There's uh, you know, not, nothing he said during the campaign is come to fruition, and it doesn't seem like it matters all that much to him. And this was a squishy campaign promise. I mean, he was uh, way less certain on this issue than people like. Uh Marco Rubio, Ted Cruz, who are saying we are absolutely going to tear up this deal on day one, um, he would sort of selectively go back and forth between saying we're going to tear it up and I'm going to enforce it like you've never seen a deal enforced ever before. So what, uh, Marina, what is Trump doctrine looking like to you at this point? Well, I mean, <laughs> it's a lot of America first, as we saw during the U.N. speech. But he's kind of trying to have it both ways now. Like we remember during the campaign, he always criticized the UN. He called it a club where people just go and hang out and talk. Um, but now that he has to be a part of the club, he's now sort of like, all right, I guess I need to be kind of cordial. You, you detected a shift in rhetoric toward the UN. A little bit. I mean, he it, it's it's hard to tell. I mean, I think the point is that we don't really know what Trump doctrine yeah, is. I, my guess is that it's, uh, you know, more isolationist, but also more bombs. Right. <laughs> right. Isolationist until you really piss us off. It's a big explosion. Right. All right. Uh, Marina Fang, Jessica Schulberg, thank you so much for talking to us. Thank you. Thank you. We'll be right back. And we're back. This is the disembodied voice of Arthur Delaney. I'm joined in your speaker by the disembodied voice of my colleague, Julia Craven. Hi. And the disembodied voice of my other colleague, Paul Blumenthal. Hello. (laughs) Paul, you're an expert on campaign finance stuff, and it came out this week that President Donald Trump is using money from the Republican National Committee to pay off his extraordinary legal debts because he's had to hire all these lawyers to defend him from the criminal probe from Robert Mueller. What, what is that? Why is that happening? It seems improper. I understand that it has never happened before, a president using party funds in this way. So yeah, President Trump is the first president to ever use money raised by a political party committee for his own defense lawyers in a criminal probe 
which is a sentence that sounds crazy if you start saying it too many times. Because this is money from... Wow, the president's already under investigation in a criminal probe, and he's using money raised by uh, large donors to cover his legal bills. Isn't he rich? He is also quite rich, as as we've heard a lot about, I think. You know, on the campaign trail, he said uh, that he couldn't be corrupted like other politicians because he doesn't accept money from donors because he's rich. However... Here we have him, you know, raising money from donors for the the Republican National Committee and then using that money on his his lawyers who then, you know, go and yell about the case at a steakhouse overheard by New York Times reporters. Watch your back, bitch. <laughs> Isn't it it's donor money uh and that's often rich people in cowboy hats, but it's also right it's like Joe the plumber's money. So actually the money that's being used here is in a separate account for the Republican National Committee. And it's actually, well, this all sounds very improper. It's all totally legal because back in 2014, uh, Republicans, they had gotten rid of public funding for uh, presidential conventions. And, you know, before they knew they were going to be nominating Donald Trump as their presidential candidate in 2016, they wanted to figure out a way to now pay for their next nominating convention. And so in December 2014, they were like, well, hey, why don't we increase campaign contribution limits for the Republican National Committee and the Democratic National Committee uh, and, and, and allow that money of... to be raised solely for a convention? And then Democrats were like, well, uh, OK, but let us create some other accounts, one for, you know, covering uh, the cost for offices like their building or whatever, and then the other for legal expenses. Uh, and then this legal expense account basically said that the money could be spent for anything related to legal expenses. And it's now being used to cover uh, Donald Trump's uh, criminal probe defense lawyers. So so I guess it's just so ridiculous that one, the president is under investigation and two, he's using campaign funds to fund these legal fees. Like, so this has never happened before, right? Correct. Could you kind of um, could you talk about just what this said? Like, what does this say to people? Well, I mean, we know that Donald Trump, even though he's a billionaire, is incredibly cheap and doesn't want to spend his own money. I mean, you know, like Spy Magazine did this test where they sent out checks of increasingly lower worth to rich people in New York. And the only person who cashed all of them was Donald Trump, including a 17-cent check. And and Trump himself Um, has repeatedly – you didn't need to infer this from his checks. He's repeatedly said during campaign, you know, well, uh, I don't pay him if I get a contractor I don't like. Like when he didn't think a hotel ballroom was cold enough, he said, well, don't pay – the uh, the hotel, yeah. For so being cheap just, on air, you know, finding a way not to use his money to pay for his defense lawyers, who seem to be constantly screwing up and cursing at people and drunken email messages. And does this further uh, entrench Trump as the head of the Republican Party? I know he's obviously. Well, I think the there's titular. no doubt. I mean that he's. I mean he's sucking their money away to spend on his defense lawyers. Like, of course, he's he's the face of the Republican Party. But it's like, not a separate account. This is money that they would be spending on campaigns. Well, no. So this is the, the legal account. So when in 2014, when Republicans and Democrats got together and created these three new accounts, one of them was just for legal expenses. And it was created at the behest of a guy named Mark Elias, 
who is the Democratic National Committee. Who is a lawyer. Lead lawyer. Lead lawyer for the Democrats. Also Hillary Clinton's campaign lawyer. Uh, and so what he wanted to do, basically, he was saying, well, you know, we need more money to pay for lawyers, myself. Him. I need money. Uh, I need money to challenge Republican voter suppression efforts, uh, Republican gerrymandering. And he's actually like, you know, won court cases arguing uh, against voter ID and against gerrymandered maps that, uh, you know, cut out districts for black and Latino people. Um, so there was something there. But now that account is being used by Donald Trump. So Democrats did Yeah, it. so I mean this separate account probably wasn't going to be spent on like helping some House member he- keep Paul Ryan as Speaker of the House. Uh, and most of the donors to it are like very big donors. These are the, the very rich people, Wall Street titans, cowboy hat-wearing oil men who shoot guns in the air. You so, know. This, so uh, this is uh, totally proper. It actually seems like one of the least corrupt things – that's happening. Can you? Where are we in the world of Donald Trump's corruption? It seems like something that has uh, is less of a focus than any scandal that might be happening at a, at any given moment. Uh, I mean, he's making money off the presidency. Yeah, I mean, I mean, I think it's sort of like without doubt that Donald Trump is the most corrupt president in the history of the United States. It's just like uh, there's just so much of it that maybe we don't notice. It's like, it's like the, air. Yeah, it's like the Montgomery <laughs> Burns syndrome where like all of the diseases get clogged in the door at once and none of them get out. Well, like we keep hearing about people who wish to – who may wish to win favor with the administration getting hotel rooms at Trump's hotel in Washington. Yeah, I mean we – For instance. For, foreign leaders even, you know, like the prime minister of Malaysia who's like under investigation, you know, a good way to uh, – win favor and get support in his home country, come here, stay at the Trump Hotel, spend your foreign government money that goes to enrich Trump. I mean, we've also seen like Mar-a-Lago, they've lost a lot of business for charity events from like ordinary charity groups, but they're getting more political events. So like, you know, a right wing, uh, like a right wing pro-Israel guy is throwing an event there to be like, we like what Trump has done. We want to show him we support him. By making him richer. So just to kind of go back, just to go back to the legal fund, do voters know about this? Like, is this something that an average voter would know about or understand? I'm I'm sure that no, they would they would not. I mean, campaign finance is one of those really like annoying, complex things that most people like aren't going to follow the ins and outs of. so no, but it does – I don't know if you're a Republican National Committee donor, maybe you don't want to pay for a billionaire's legal defense. Does the Supreme Court have any stuff coming up where they could further loosen restrictions on money and politics because they have the big Citizens United case and there have been several other lesser known cases since then. But it seems like the campaign finance system is going in one direction, which is more money in politics. Is, is that going to happen some more in the immediate future? Well, there are no cases in the pipeline immediately that I'm aware of right now. Um, I mean, there this was an issue in, in the election that nobody really talked about, which is the Supreme Court. Um, you know, I guess conservatives understand this very well. They want to maintain a five-vote 
majority on the court, and so they voted for Donald Trump, even whether they liked him or not, because they were able to replace Scalia with Gorsuch. And if you know Gorsuch holds the same far right wing views on campaign finance that Scalia held, that Clarence Thomas holds, that Alito holds, and I mean, the future cases will be decided in that direction. So it's, it's an inevitability, election, though. even though Trump was always like money in politics, bad, corruption, terrible, crooked Hillary, you know, then his appointment of Gorsuch will solidify and make that much stronger had he not won and somebody else like Merrick Garland or whomever else was appointed. We would be going in the other direction and you'd be seeing cases trying to uh, increase the restrictions on money in politics. Is there any the system. drain the swamp initiative that has uh, been implemented? For instance, there was talk about prohibiting lobbyists from bugging their colleagues for a certain, you know, extending bans on on lobbying contacts. Has any of that gone through? I mean, he implemented an executive order that was sort of weaker than the executive order that it replaced that had been put in place by Obama. Um, but, you know, he's appointed people who are lobbyists or former lobbyists from all sorts of industries to oversee the regulation of industries that they used to lobby on or were lawyers for companies. You know, this is it, it, it's that's not just like a Donald Trump thing. I mean, that happens in both parties. Um, but it's pretty widespread now. I also think that the drain the swamp stuff was really like less about actual corruption for him and many of his supporters and more about like the swamp is just government and and minorities just stick just, it to libs yeah or economic anxiety yes economic anxiety yes exactly all right paul blumenthal julia craven thank you for talking to us thank you we'll be right back So that's what happened this week. So That Happened was produced, edited, and engineered by Zach Young. Our executive producer is Nick Offenberg. I'm Arthur Delaney. And this week we were joined by DC Bureau Chief for The Intercept, Ryan Grimm, as well as HuffPost reporters Jeff Young, Jessica Schulberg, Marina Fang, Julia Craven, and Paul Blumenthal. So That Happened is available on Apple Podcasts. Check out the whole family of HuffPost podcasts in the iTunes store. And while you're there, subscribe and tell your friends. If there's something you'd like to hear us talk about, send an email to so that happened at HuffPost.com. Thanks to all of you for listening, and don't be a stranger. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.